Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Acts chapter 3, as we look at this second sermon of uh, Peter, as Peter and John and the lame man stand in the portico of Solomon's uh, preaching the gospel. So uh, Acts chapter 3, looking over at uh, verse 11, when you found that, if you'd be so kind to sustain in the honor of the reading of God's word this morning, and let's see what he has to say to us this morning. So Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 11, it says, Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's. And they were greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, uh, why, why do you marvel at this? Or, or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the holy and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did all your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all of his prophets, and uh, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Father, this morning... Thank you for your marvelous blessing of, of music and fellowship and time with the children. And thank you so much for your word that speaks directly to our heart. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and separates those things within us that, Father, you reveal to us each time we hear your word and read your word. So this morning I ask this of you, as I stand as your humble servant before your people, that you would speak through my mouth and let your words be heard this morning for your honor and for your glory. Let the church be edified, Father. Let Satan be horrified as he knows the gospel is presented to your people this morning. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. We've been walking through Peter's sermon in the portico of Solomon, and, and we've seen that he's used several names. There'll be six that he actually uses as he talks about this Jesus. And as he tells the people the nature of the guilt that they should have at the death of Jesus. You've already seen and we've looked at together that the first thing that he had, had, had called this Jesus, this name that he had given that described the nature of Jesus was back in verse 13 when he said that he was a glorified servant. If you remember that shocked the people because they were looking for a king to come, not a servant. He moved on and said not only was he a, a glorified servant, but he was this exalted Jesus also in verse 13. If you remember that Jesus, the name that was used there was the name that was related to Jehoshua or, or Joshua out of the Old Testament. If you remember Joshua from the Old Testament, he was the deliverer, the one who was taking the people into the, the promised land. So we've seen this vision of a servant, this, this vision of a deliverer that, that he had, had told them about. And then I think it was last week we looked at the fact that they had denied uh, two names that we put together last week. This, this holy and, and righteous one or just one. They, they had really not seen that this Jesus had been set apart by 
God the Father for something special, this holiness. And they didn't understand the righteousness or the justness of this one that had come that they had placed upon a cross and killed. And now he takes us in a, to a whole new level. He, he kicks it up a notch as that Cajun guy who does the cooking says. What is that he does? Bam, cook it up a notch thing. I don't, I don't know why that just jumped to my mind. It must be the ADHD. But he's, he's going to take it to a whole new level. He, he's laid out before them the fact that, yeah, you, you murdered the servant. You, you had murdered the deliverer. Yes, you murdered the holy one and the righteous one. And now he's, he's going to tell them, here's the biggest one of all, which there's still one more to follow. But he says, what you have murdered, the, the person, the nature of the person that you had murdered, we see there in that 15th verse when he says, the prince of life, <laughs> the prince of life. You know, as, as I read the scriptures, I studied the scripture, and it's, it's been a busy week. It has been a busy week trying to put things together. Spent a lot of time yesterday locked up in my office just attempting to put thoughts from the week onto paper. And, and as I thought about this, this prince of life, this, this one that had been hung upon a cross, I thought about something that we all have in common. There's something that we all have in common that surrounds this name that's given, <laughs> We all like life and really don't look forward to death. It really became a reality yesterday as I stood in this pulpit and, and spoke about a lady that demonstrated what it was to live life to the fullest for Jesus Christ. You know, I, I got to thinking about it as I've talked with the family this past week as, as there was joy. There, there was joy in the homegoing of Miss Bernice among the family members, which seems a little odd. A little odd to some Christians, but definitely odd to the world. But when you really understood and you heard the letter that I read that she wrote in her own hand uh, writing yesterday, uh, there's an understanding that Christians should have about life that the world really doesn't have. You know, we all would vote, I, I think, if we were to take a survey this morning and unanimously, positively to a question. And, and, and what is the question? How many of you would say yes to life and no to death? I think we would all say yes to life. How do I know that? It, it's interesting. It's interesting that most people don't really look forward to death. It's probably because we we don't understand it. We, we don't quite know how the whole process works. We have faith that there's eternal life. There's something after physical death. But we don't look forward to it. We don't look forward to it at all. Yet, you know, the Bible is really clear. The Bible is really clear about this physical body and its, its continued march towards death. You know, it, it tells us in Ecclesiastes 3 that to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. There is a time to be born and there is a time to die. You know, unless Jesus returns while I'm still breathing, one day this old body will expire. It doesn't really matter what I do to keep it alive. One day it's going to expire. You know, as Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, he was probably reflecting on a life, and, and, and he determined that God was in control of all things. He picked the day that we were born. Hence, that's why you should be opposed to any type of abortion. Because the choice of a life to come into this world is not the mother's, it's not the father's, it's God's. See, when you reach back into the Bible, it puts a whole new framework on the discussions you hear around us. 
It's not about what term they're in for abortion. It's about any abortion is murder and it's a sin against an almighty God. And, and I, think, I think Solomon understood that. He understood that whenever he said there's a time to be born. He understood that just as assuredly as God decides who comes into this world and when, he decides who leaves this world and when. You know, there's a certain amount of comfort in that, isn't there? There's a certain amount of comfort in it. Yes, I do think we can speed up the process of death sometimes. My, my wife and some of you get on me all the time that I don't sleep enough and I eat wrong and I do some other things. And, you know, I, I, I look and it, I, Vernon, you can appreciate this. You know what I know about everybody who goes to the gym every morning and works out? <laughs> They're going to die too. <laughs> so I said, you know what? I'm just not going to go to the gym. <laughs> but that's not a good choice. Probably not a good decision to make. But, but you know, Solomon understood that one day there was going to come an expiration of this physical body. There was going to come. But he also understood that there's more to life. It, it doesn't end at death. And, and see, that's where the Christians should stand. The Christians should realize, yes, one day this body's going to quit. But that's not the end. See, that's not the end. There's, there's more to life than when you cease to breathe on this earth. How do we know that? How do we know that? Hebrews, Hebrews 9.27, I believe it is, says, And it's appointed once unto men, or unto men once to die, I believe is the way it's worded. It's appointed once unto men to die. The writer of Hebrews tells us that, that we all face a time of death for this physical body. There will come a time that no matter what we do, whether it's the jogging, the eating right, the, the working out, getting plenty of sleep, avoiding coffee. I don't even know why I brought that one up. Uh, whatever we do in our health, we, we all face somehow death. <laughs> but then what? Then what? I had a conversation with a young lady in our church this morning. She says, you know what? I've got a person I want to talk to. Comes from a background that doesn't understand who God is. Lives a lifestyle that is not godly, but just recently had the shock of, her, of their life thinking they might die. And I think, Pastor, it's opened the door. Can you give me some advice on how to share the gospel? Because no matter whether Christian or, or atheist or whatever you may be, death is a scary thing. And, and, and the door gets opened because people wonder, what, what's after what comes after? The writer of Hebrews, luckily, in that Hebrews 9.27 passage, goes on to tell us there is something that comes after. If you remember, he says, and it is, and, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, he says, but after this, the judgment. <laughs> that should have made the hair stand up on your arms and the back of your neck. You see, because there is something coming. There is something coming for the person who dies. See, when we cease to exist on earth, we start our time in this, this eternity. Yes, we're living in part of our eternity now, but it will start in a different form for us after death. And we, we start this eternity, and, and if the writer of Hebrews is correct, and I have to assume he is, that that step into eternity starts with this judgment. For those of us who know Jesus Christ, we realize that Christ has taken our judgment. For those who do not know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that should be a scary thought. To think that you'll step from this earth into the courtroom of heaven, so to speak. Into this courtroom of heaven. See what Peter is doing in this sermon? He's preparing those people standing in the portico before him for what they're going to face. After death. 
And he's doing it through the example of what they did to the Son of God in killing him. And see, whenever he brings forth this this statement about the Prince of Life, he is dumping upon them the guilt of what they have just done in killing this Jesus. That guilt that should cause them and it should cause us to, to place our lives on this yardstick of how God measures our eternity. We should look at how God measures eternity, not how we think it's measured, but how he measures it. And we should lay our life there and say, how does it line up? See, the name that Peter uses here to us doesn't say a whole lot. But he uses this name, the Prince of Life. I find it very interesting that he uses this word prince. We're not extremely familiar with having princes or in our particular way of, of governing. Uh, we, we think of a prince whenever we think of this form of government, uh, uh, probably that has kings or, or queens and, and, and princes. We, we see this picture, and, and even though we're not familiar with it, we see it. We see it on the news. We see it in England, don't we? You know, you know they, they've got this uh, uh, king or queen happens to be right now that, that's sort of, I guess, ruler over all things in, in some form. Not real sure how all that works out in their government, but there, there is a queen, but I never see her do anything. Does she ever do anything? Uh, so I don't know if this is a good example, but let's just use it. There, there's a queen. And, and under that, you, you've got these uh, princes, I guess, the prince of Wales, the prince of, I don't know, if they're a prince of a whale, or they're also a prince of a cow, or is that whale's a country? I'm not sure. But there's prince of this, and there's prince of that, and there's, there's these other things. And, and the duty of the prince is not to take charge, but is to put forth that which the queen or the king is, is doing. It, it's an underservant, so to speak, to, to the king or to the queen. And, and you know what? As you look at it, as you first think about it, you, in, in your mind you say, you know what? That, that could be a, a good way to think about Jesus. In, in some aspect. Um, you know, we, we know that Jesus in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 9, Isaiah 9, I believe it is, at his birth, when, it, when it's prophesied about his birth, what, what is he called? Prince of Peace. So, so we see him being called Prince and, and other things. This Prince of Peace. We also know that the Bible talks a whole bunch about the fact that one day he is going to be the ruler, the the ruler over all things. So we see that governmental kind of look at, at, at this Jesus. And, and it makes perfect sense, I guess, to, to think of, of Jesus being this, this prince of God, this, this coming as a representative, because he did. He, he came as a representative in flesh of God because he is God. So, so I think it's okay to think of him like that. And oftentimes it's one of these princes that winds up becoming the king anyway. And we can kind of look forward and we know that when Jesus returns the next time, he's going to be what? The King of kings and the Lord of lords. ruling over. So, so in one essence, we can stop and say, you know what? Using the prince speaks of this governmental position of, of Jesus, which the Jews standing there had been looking for a king to come. Maybe it struck their heart when he talked about it. And we can even make sense of this Jesus because the Bible tells us about the King of kings and Lord of lords, yet... If we look at this word prince, you'll find something very interesting. If you further examine that word, it actually gives you a deeper look into what Peter's trying to tell the one standing there. Yes, in some offhanded sense, he may be mentioning this governmental issue because that's the way the Jews looked at this coming Messiah, this coming king. <laughs> but there's another way that that word that's used there can be translated other than prince, and he is quite often in the Bible translated in a different manner. A matter of fact, Hebrews 12.2 uses this exact same word. And I think you'll recognize this particular scripture. 
It says, uh, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That word author is the exact same word that's translated prince here. You may say, what's the big deal about that? You see, the, the writer of Hebrews sees Jesus as this author or beginner of our faith, this, this, this base layer, so to speak, of our faith. And, and I think we would all agree that's exactly what Jesus is. The Bible tells us that our faith even comes as a gift from God to believe in this Jesus Christ. It's not something we muster up ourselves. It, it's given to us by the author of faith. It begins in Jesus and it ends in Jesus. It's all about Jesus what if we were to use that same translation of the word, the English, in, in our text? Would it change the way that we read the text? You see, if you actually translate it the same way, just verse 15, it says, and killed the author of life. You know, it's one thing to be a prince, second in command. It's a whole new thing to be the author of something, isn't it? The originator. You see, the writer... Hebrews saw Jesus as this, this author, and, and whenever the word was translated here in Acts, they, they translated it prince, but the meaning was still the same to those that were hearing this word. And when, when he said that you killed the author of life, I'm sure the congregation, the ones gathered there, took a deep breath. It was a wow moment. What Peter's trying to help them understand is, is that they, they killed this author, this beginner, this originator of life. And I've already talked to you about the fact, what are we all chasing? What do we all want? What do we all desire? We, we want life. And what he's telling them right now is you have killed the author of life. He wasn't an ordinary man. This wasn't an ordinary guy you put to death. No, this was the originator of life. And, and why is this so important? Why is it important that they understand that they killed this originator of life? See, Peter's already described their choices in the matter. Remember 3.14. In 3.14 he said, But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Look at the paradox in what he's just laid at their feet. In verse 14 he said, When given the choice, you chose the murderer. And he says, Why is that important? Verse 15, Because the one you chose to kill is the author of life. They choose, chose a murderer, death, over life. The one who took life, they asked for. The one who gave life, they killed. What a paradox. If, if everyone has the desire for life, why then would they choose death? You know, the decision that they make is no different than the decision we make every day in our life. Every day in our life when we choose anything, anything over Jesus. No matter how good, no matter how grand, no matter how meaningful, anything chosen before Jesus Christ means you've placed death ahead of life. See, the only life, the only originator of life, the only person that is life is Jesus Christ. And when he's set aside, no matter, no matter how grand the thing is that is chosen or how honorable the thing is that is chosen, it's been death that has been chosen over life. You see, when we choose to take in partake of sin instead of righteousness, when we choose to ignore what God has told us that, that we're to do and what is best for us, and, and it's for his glory, when we when we chase after anything that 
He calls sin. We choose death. For me, this begs a question. As, as I think about what he's saying here about this prince of life, it, it begs a question that has to be answered. It has to be answered by us individually. Yes, you could sit and you can have someone else look at what life is for you and how your life is and give you advice. But at the end of the day, each of us may or will face God and have to answer the question about our life. What is our life hinged on? I think it all starts with the question, what is life? What is life? What does it even mean to have life? I find it interesting. When you talk to some and just coming off of a funeral service, the celebration of a home going yesterday, I think I stopped and thought about the things that have been said from pulpits or said to me about loved ones. You want to ask questions and say, hey, as I, as I talk about your loved one during the service, what, what is it that you want me to mention? You know, for some, life is measured in the number of years lived. You know, Miss Bernice lived 90 years. 90 years. We'd all say, boy, that sure is a long life. And you've heard that mentioned. So a lot, for lots of folks, it's measured in time, the, the amount of time a person has lived. For some, life is measured in goodness. I don't know how many times I've had people say, yeah, they sure were a good person. They had a good life. For, for some, life is measured in goodness. For some, and a lot, especially in our world today, life is measured by possessions. Life is measured by possessions. He who dies with the most stuff must have lived the best life. We see people literally physically killing themselves to amass things. You know, for some, life is measured in kindness. It's what can they do for others that is good, sometimes for the good of the person, most often to make ourselves feel good. You know, some lives are measured by our family. Oftentimes when I'm doing funerals, people will talk about the family members that are left behind and how good the family is because of this person that has passed. And they, they measure the goodness of a person, the, the, the breadth of their life based on what comes behind them in their family. I'm not saying any of these things are wrong. Yes, you should be able to look behind a person and see what they have brought along as a family and their training and understand something about a person's life. Yes, being kind to people is important. Doing good things is important. Even having possessions, if you're using them for the glory of God, is important. Living a long life is important. You have a longer time to be a glory to God on this earth. All those things are important. But the question is, how does God measure life? How does God measure life? Does he look at the yardstick the same way we look at the yardstick? See, God doesn't give us a set of variables to see where we line up as far as how good our life is. God gives us a measurement, but that measurement isn't about how good or how bad. God's measurement of life is literally, do you have life or do you have death? See, it's, it's not quantified, it's qualified in who you put your faith and trust in. It's time we wake up and realize anything other than believing in Jesus Christ for your life means you believe in the devil for death. There is no margin in the middle. There's nowhere to straddle the fence. There is no way to stand in the middle of those two things. You either love Jesus with all of your heart and you have eternal life or you hate him and you love the devil and you have eternal death. There is no middle ground. We must choose life. You don't wind up at the end of the day just making it because you've been a good person. 
You see, when God looks at your life and he, he looks at what you've done with this Jesus, have you chosen life? Have you rejected him and chosen death? You have to kind of look at what Jesus said about his own life to understand it. See, it's real easy to know what God believes life is when you look at his prince, his representative, his only begotten son, and what he said on earth. Remember in John 6, 48, he said these words that we all live by, I am the bread of life. In John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life. For the sheep. In John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus repeatedly from his own lips spoke about him being life and that life is being in Christ. If you want to have life, you must have Christ. There is no middle ground. He makes this clear when he gives a comparison. A comparison of two things in John 10. Two things in John 10. John 10, he talks about this shepherd and this thief. The shepherd and the thief. As he goes through and he's telling the stories, he's, he's talking about this parable. He's, he's giving them examples of, of life and death, really. He's, he says in verse 7, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door to sheep. So he sets up this example of, of these sheep having a place to rest and stay and come into and have life protected. And he says, the one that opens the door to let them in, the one that lays across the door to protect them at night, the one that takes care of them while they're in this place is me, the shepherd. Really, if you look at it, everything that is life to those sheep comes through that shepherd. For they have no defenses of their own. They have no way to know where they're going. Sheep are dumb animals. And he's saying, as a shepherd, I, I am the door to all of this. And this, this sheep, these sheep are protected by me. He then goes on to say that all those who came before him were not sheep. They were, in fact, thieves and robbers. He goes on to say down through verse 8. And he says that, all of those who enter by him will be saved. Those who had followed those before had followed thieves and robbers. And then he makes his statement in verse 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. So he sets up this picture. Here I'm the shepherd. I'm the door. I'm the one who protects. And the thieves and robbers have come, but they come with a reason other than protection. They, they come that they might steal and kill and destroy. Jesus tells us there is one who is a thief. We know that to be real in our world. And he says the thief has one goal. Kill, steal, and destroy. He doesn't say it, but it's implied. This person, this, this being, this, this thief he's talking about is, is Satan. And, he, and he's setting up this example of him as, as a son of God. And this, this Satan that's come to kill, steal, and destroy. See, it's, it's Satan's goal to steal. To steal your eternal life. To steal your joy. To steal your peace in life. It is Satan's goal to come and to kill. To, to have death for you eternally, not life. To keep you from having that ever, everlasting life. He comes to destroy. Satan's job in your life, his goal in your life is to destroy your life. To destroy your relationships with the ones that you love. To destroy your fellowship with each other. But most especially to destroy your faith in an almighty God. 
He comes to just destroy and wreck your life. But aren't you glad in 10.10, John 10.10, that Jesus doesn't stop when he says the thief comes, or the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But then he says, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. He makes a statement. You want life? I'm life. But notice what else he says. I'm not just ordinary life. I'm abundant life. You want to know how to have an abundant, joyful, peaceful life that even in the depths of the darkest things that come your way, you can have joy? It's found in Jesus Christ. See, anything that Jesus does, he does to the fullest. He never gives half of anything. And when he gives life, there is nothing left to give. We know that because he gave his life for us. So Jesus says that he's life and that he gives it more abundantly. Jesus also gives us life that we might know the love of God. Not only that we might have abundant life, but he gives us life that we might know the love of God. Very quickly, you might want to jot it down. We don't have time to turn to it, but 1 John 4, 9. 1 John 4, 9 says, In this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world. And why? That we might live through him. That we might live through him. So, Living through him, having Christ in us, manifests the love of God to us. Jesus has given us life in him that we might know that God loves us. That's how we can rejoice. That's how we can rejoice when we read John 3.16. And it says that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We know that, that love is true. Because us living in Christ, Him giving His life for us, manifests within us and to us the love of God. You ever wondered if God loves you? Look at the cross. You ever wondered if God loves you? Know the tomb is empty. God loves you. God loves you. God loves, God's love for us was shown through in our life in Christ. And it being shown through in our life reminds us that God loves us. No matter the warts and all, God loves you. No matter your success or your failure, God loves you. No matter your obedience or disobedience, God loves you. And you know he loves you because he's given his life in Jesus Christ for you. And how does this life in, in Christ take place? One of the verses that comes to mind as I think about this transition from death into life through Jesus Christ is a verse in Colossians 2.13, and it says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, speaking of God, has made alive together with him, speaking of Jesus Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses. You know, when God said you are forgiven, he brought you to life in Jesus Christ. God saw you in your sin and paid the price for the transgression against him. And he paid that price with his only begotten son who died on our behalf. Fortunately, he didn't stay dead upon a cross. He was buried in a tomb and he rose again. And now we're alive. We're alive in this living Christ because we have accepted the forgiveness of God through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. What difference? What difference does this life in Christ make in us? 
Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we're buried with him through baptism into death. It's something we say whenever we have a person in the baptism pool. We're representing outwardly that which has taken place within him. It says, you know, we've been buried with him in, in baptism to death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also walk in newness of life. I think sometimes we miss those last few words. It says we walk in newness of life. If we've been made alive in Christ, there should be a newness, a newness to our life. It shouldn't be the same old thing. It shouldn't be the same repetition. We shouldn't walk into this place with the same mindset. We shouldn't live our life the same way we've lived it. There should be this newness, this freshness. There's a certain refreshing to your life when you understand what Christ did for you and that you've been raised from death into life in Him. There's a certain skip in your step. You see, the old life has passed away and has been replaced with a new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. You know how many things fall under the all things category? All things. Everything about you has been made new. We need to realize when we've been made new to be in Christ, and a new man came to life in us. This, this whole newness, our, our old desires, old desires for things should be gone and they should be replaced with new desires. Old habits that we have should be set aside, should be disappeared from our life, and we should have new habits in Christ. Old thoughts that have bound up our mind in the past should cease, and they should be replaced with new thoughts of our God. Our old heart of stone that loved no one, not even ourselves, should be replaced with that heart of flesh, the Word says, and filled with the love of God. You see, that heart that within us now beats with the life of Christ because of what he did on the cross for us. And if we're a new creation, the Bible says that we are a new creation. We need to live like a new creation. It's time the church lives as the creation that it is. In Romans, Paul tells us that we're to live a worthy life, a worthy life. You heard me read it to the children this morning when it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Be holy. Be acceptable to God. For, for that's your reasonable service. The reasonable response to the mercy of God in our lives is to be a living sacrifice for Him. The reasonable response for him crawling upon a cross to die for your sins is to live a life that glorifies him. To live holy. To be acceptable. To endeavor to have a life that's a representative of the one who died on the cross for our sins. How else will this world ever come to know Jesus? How else will the world ever come to see Jesus if they don't see it in you? Think back about how you came to know Jesus Christ. I'll guarantee you there was someone in your life that was a living example of what Jesus is. And it's that example that led you. It may have been a grandmother, a mother, a father, a neighbor, a lady that picked you up and brought you to Bible school. It may have been your Sunday school teacher. There was someone that lived out that new creation, that new life. And it so caught your attention that your heart was drawn to Jesus. How can we live a life that represents the one who gave his life for us? Back to that Acts 13 passage. 
He says, it killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead. There's an important part of that that verse when it says that, that God raised from the dead. Understand where we're coming from in the book of Acts. What happened just a few days prior in the upper room, there was this Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit that was given. Power was given to those gathered in that room. They had the ability to speak in languages they didn't even know so that the ones that were gathered there could know that something had just taken place. There's a power that happened just before this sermon when a man that sat by the gate beautiful for 40 years, history says, was made to walk again. These people that had passed him now see this man walking. There was this certain sense of power. It's that same power that was used to raise God's only begotten son from death to life and the tomb be found empty. See, it's that same power. You know, we can't live a Christ-like life on our own. We can't give ourselves power. There's, there's not enough good you can do, and there's not enough bad you can stop doing. There's, there's just not enough. The only way, the only way we can live a life that represents Jesus Christ is to live it by the power that raised Christ from the dead. And that power is the Holy Spirit that the Bible says that the moment you come to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior indwells you. That same Bible, though, says that you can do things in your life that quenches the power of that spirit. Just because there's gas in the tank doesn't mean the car is going to crank itself. Be careful. Be careful how your life is lived out. Be cautious of the things of the world that you take in. For by taking those things in, that power that indwells you may not be able to be seen and revealed to the world. How will this power that's in us affect our life in closing? That Acts 3.15 passes, the very last part of it. He says that you killed the prince of life. He talks about the power that raised God from the dead. And then he mentions, of which we are witnesses. You know, I told you that right after life, the Bible tells us there's going to be a judgment. Think about the courtroom. Think about the courtroom. What is the most effective testimony in court? It's an eyewitness. It's an eyewitness. Hearsay is thrown out, but you put a person on the stand and says, I saw him do such and such. That's a powerful statement. You know what Peter's telling him? You know what Peter's telling him? He said, you know what? <laughs> We're eyewitnesses. Maybe those standing there. He's not only saying you're an eyewitness that Jesus was alive, but you're an eyewitness of the power of God because look who's clinging to me. It's a former lame man. And you've already said that the only one that can heal is, is God. The only one that has that power is God. And here stands before you a representation of the power of God and him working today. He says, you're an eyewitness. <laughs> you may say, Pastor, that's great. That's good for them. But I haven't seen Jesus alive. I, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody that couldn't walk that just jumped up. and. St I've never seen anybody raised from the dead. Pastor, that, that's, that's okay for them. What about me? I, I'm not an eyewitness, and you're correct. I, I I've never seen a person's limbs be made strong. I've never seen a dead person get up and walk off. But, you know, we're better than having an eyewitness. You know, we have an eyewitness, the one-letter eyewitness. 
And see, that, that's the beauty of Christianity. You, you have the personal witness of a changed life through faith in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us what faith is. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. <laughs> Even though you've never physically laid your eyes on Jesus, do you have faith that he exists? Even though you've never held his hand, do you believe he's real? Even though you've never heard him audibly speak to you, do you believe he is the word? See, that's called faith. And when you think about being a witness, you are an eyewitness. Why are you an eyewitness? Even though you've never seen him alive after the crucifixion, you have definitely seen the power of a risen Savior in your life if you've come to trust him as your Lord and Savior. And how is it you have faith in Jesus being alive? How is it that you can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is alive? I think back to the old hymn. I think back to the old hymn. I know that he lives because he lives within my heart. How can this world be changed by Christ's church? Realizing that there's only one prince, author of life, who's Jesus Christ. Realizing that all of us, at some point in our life, have sinned against an almighty God, and we've chosen death over life. Almost as if we held the nail in our hand and drove it in with a hammer. That's why the Bible says all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. We're all equal. We, we all stand right there in the murder of the prince of life. We all must understand that there is a prince, that we were responsible for him crawling upon a cross because of our sin, and then choose. We have to make a choice. Are we going to take Barabbas, the one who murdered? Or are we going to take Jesus, the one who died? You have to make a choice. You have to realize that your sin drove his, the nails in his hands on the cross, but he did it because he loved you and wants to forgive you of your sins. And you have to accept him as the answer to your sin problem. Because the only way that you can move from all of sin to come short of the glory of God to knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is to believe in your heart that God did send him to die for you, that he did place him in a tomb, but he did also raise him from the dead. And you must confess with your mouth that he is your Lord and Savior. It doesn't matter that the Bible says he is the Lord and Savior. He must be your Lord and Savior. You see, at the end of the day, the only way that you avoid that judgment after death being a judgment to a place called hell and it instead being a judgment of what you did with Jesus Christ after accepting Him into your life, the only way you can look forward to the judgment after death is to have assurance that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior. Church, it's time we wake up. We need to first examine our own hearts. If today... I draw my last breath. Will I be in the arms of God because of Jesus Christ and what He's done in my life? Or will I spend an eternity in a place called hell? It's time pride gets thrown out the window and we look at the throne of grace and decide, has that grace and mercy been applied to our life? And if it has, then we must look outside of ourselves and realize there is a world around us that unless something changes is going straight to a place called hell. 
And we must realize that Christ stood and looked out over that field and said, It is white unto harvest, but where are the laborers? Let me answer the question for him. You, I, are the laborers. It's time we realize salvation is not something we put in a box and we hold on to to the end of life for ourselves. And when we die, we say, there it is, God, I got it, let me in. No. Salvation is something that when we understand what Christ did in our life, we jump for joy and we quit sleeping and eating and spending time doing things that doesn't glorify God and we spend time doing things that tell others about this Christ that has so changed our life. Why? Because we are completely in love with Him for the life that He has given us. Church, it's time. It's time that the community comes to know Jesus Christ because we live a life filled with with life given to us by the Prince of Life. And His name is Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.